We're going to start in verse 11 and continue to the end of the chapter. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to, you, to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. And may uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to God today. Okay, so we're, we've been working through Paul's letter to the churches in Ephesus, in the area of Ephesus. I first want to start by um, asking you if you've ever gone to the countryside somewhere and have seen those old stone walls uh, that separate old property lines. Actually, you know, Becky grew up on a farm in western New York, and uh, she tells me that when she was a kid, she would help uh, her friend's father, the neighbor, rebuild uh, their stone walls at times when they would start to fall apart. The American poet Robert Frost wrote a poem called Mending Wall, and in that poem, Robert Frost described a scene in which two farmers who were neighbors gathered at their property line in order to repair a stone wall that had, be, you know, had fallen into disrepair during the winter as the frosts allow the upper stones to, to pop and fall over. And so they have to, every spring, meet as neighbors on their property line to rebuild that wall. And Frost talks about how one of the neighbors is really set in his ways and, and a bit relationally distant, and, and he likes the old quip and likes to repeat it, saying, good fences make good neighbors. But the other farmer, and, and this is supposed to be the narrator, he seems to want deeper fellowship with his neighbor. And, and the poem talks about how, you know, the wall isn't a bad thing, because it actually does a very good thing. It brings two neighbors together and unites them toward a common work at least once a year. But the poem goes on to wonder how the wall is powerless to keep them together, how the wall is powerless to prevent them from going their separate ways, because after all, the function of a wall 
is to divide. And so the poem playfully suggests that walls, while of course serving their purpose, are not good for everything, right? And so the narrator even says, before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. And so over a century later, from the publishing of that poem, in a time right now where unity is very much a stated value, priority, agenda in our culture, in our society, in every corporation, in every political party, in so many movies, right, where unity is a stated priority in our society, and yet there are so many offenses, so many offended, so many taking offense, so many giving offense. If you read the news and you think about your own life, right, the world, our lives are littered with failed attempts at unity, and how even now so many attempts toward unity in our world are digressing towards polarization. Even as we try to unite, we find ourselves more and more polarized. So in a world of divisions, how do Christians pursue unity without killing diversity? In a polarized world, how do Christians pursue unity without killing diversity, how each of us are unique. Paul's second chapter of his letter to the Ephesians um, declares how every Christian has a new status. We looked at this last week in the beginning of chapter two. Paul said every Christian is saved. He said to them, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. By grace, God has saved you. So for every individual Christian, Paul made a declaration, you are saved. But now the second half of the chapter, which we're going to look at now, makes another bold declaration. Not only are you saved as individuals, but you are unified as a community. You are saved, but you are also unified. And a healthy church builds unity on the foundation of grace. And grace is the theme of, of our series on Ephesians. Grace uh, makes room in the church for outcasts and enemies and everybody who believes that they are forgiven by God. Grace makes room in the church for former outcasts, for people who were formerly each other's enemies, and for everyone who is willing to admit and trust that God has forgiven them. And that's what we're going to talk about today, outcasts, enemies, and how we're all forgiven. So let's look at this. There is room in the church for former outcasts. So Paul, who was a Jew, addresses the Gentile Christians who are reading his letter in verse 12. He tells them, remember, you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, if you remember chapter 2, verse 1, Paul had said that Jews and Gentiles were both dead in their, spiritually speaking, dead in their trespasses and sins and objects of God's wrath. 
But Gentiles, he's saying here, Gentiles had it even worse than that. Because whereas the Jews, the ancient Jews, at least had the hope of God's promises and the certainty of his revelation, the Gentiles had none of that. They had no hope. They had no objective truth. They had no certainty. They had no redeeming narrative to explain life and existence on this planet. The phrase without God in the world is maybe the saddest, loneliest thing to be as a creature. You ever thought of that? Being told, imagining that you are without Jesus, without hope, and alone in the world. And that's what he's saying the Gentile believers were. Now, perhaps some Gentiles felt the tension, but the ancient Jews were keenly aware of this difference that Paul is pointing out. Because in a world where everyone had sinned, God, in choosing Israel, in separating ancient Israel apart, really had made them separate, had created that division, that dividing wall. And now Paul, who is, referred, who is formerly in his former life known as the Hebrew of Hebrews, states something amazing and far more radical than you and I can appreciate today. He says in verse 13 to Gentile Christians, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God has made room for the Gentiles and fulfilled his ancient promise to Abraham, to whom he said, and you, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And you, we will discover later in his letter to the Ephesians that that was the big mystery, that the gospel, the good news, finally proclaims after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the Gentiles were invited in to God's eternal covenant of grace. And for that first century in which Christianity developed and took hold in the world and began to spread, Jewish Christians had to wrestle with the world-changing reality of welcoming the Gentiles in to their faith community. The Gentiles who were formerly outcasts with respect to God were now reconciled to that same God that the Jews had always known as their personal savior. So Christianity is not confined to an ethnicity. This is so important, that Christianity is not confined to an ethnicity, to a language, to a culture, or any part of the world. Now that has enormous implications for the church of all ages, for any church in any place, including us. There is room in the church not only for those who were formerly outcasts, but there's room in the church for those who were formerly enemies toward one another. And Paul talks about how another Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth, had mediated a peace agreement between God and humanity, between him and us, and between us and us. Verse 14, he goes on to say, for Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, if we can grieve as Americans, if we can grieve over uh, the history of racial hostility in our own country, we can begin to appreciate that dividing wall 
that Paul was talking about between Jews and Gentiles. But how did Jesus break down that wall? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's how Jesus did it. Now, that seems like a confusing statement, so we'll talk about it just a little bit. What did Paul mean by that? Because if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you know Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to uphold it. So is Paul now disagreeing with Jesus? Well, no. We have to look at all of the Bible to help interpret any part of the Bible. Jesus was talking about morality. Jesus was talking about how the law of Moses was also the moral law, loving God, loving one another, right? But Paul here is talking about, look at how he describes the law of Moses. He says, the law that was what? Expressed in ordinances. He's talking about the ceremonial aspects of the ancient law of Moses. The aspects, the requirements of the law that allowed the Jews to keep themselves clean from, well, Gentiles, honestly speaking. That was the point of so much of the ceremonial law, that they could be holy in the world, set apart for God's special purposes. And the ceremonial law allowed them to be separate. But now that the Gentiles were forgiven... Now that God had made the Gentiles clean, Paul is saying there's no need to keep away from them anymore. The Jews could remain Jewish, culturally, religiously. That's not the issue here. But the law's power to divide the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul says, was nullified. Meaning, meaning it lost its power. It was deregulated, unable to do what it had always done and frankly was designed to do to keep the Jews separate, to preserve them so that the Messiah could come from among them as a people. And Paul is saying that is what Jesus on the cross undid, that aspect of the law. And why had Jesus nullified that aspect of the law, which Paul said in another place was actually good. The laws are generally good. So why did Jesus nullify them on the cross? Verse 16, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see that? So he's saying that the wall between God and humanity demolished by the cross, the wall between Jew and Gentile demolished from the cross. So we see, and if you keep looking at verse 18, he says that these, these two enormous groups of people, historically speaking, were formerly enemies, but now what? Have access in one spirit to the Father. So grace can demolish any wall of hostility between factions without demolishing our individuality as people, without demolishing our ethnicity, our culture, and our traditions. How is that possible? How can grace demolish the dividing wall 
without erasing our individuality and what makes us special and beautiful and like the rest of nature, so amazingly diverse. Common parentage. Verse 19, he, he calls Jews and Gentiles through Jesus Christ members of the household of God. They have the same father. So if you're a Christian, I want to challenge you and invite you to let your primary pursuit of unity be with those whom, like you, are forgiven by a loving God. There's all sorts of unity that we pursue, and that's fine. You know, we're unified around our sports teams. Some people are unified around political uh, ideas and agendas, or unified around family traditions or cultural uh, conditions. And, and yes, many people are unified because of a shared experience of suffering or oppression. And that's all fine. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying Christians must just look out for Christians. That's not what I'm saying at all. You know, once the majority culture in the church became Gentiles, history has been littered with so many reprehensible oppressions committed against Jews by people who call themselves Christians. So the last thing I would say is that we should neglect our neighbors and protect ourselves. No, but we must, if you are a Christian, we must make our primary pursuit of unity to find a way to coexist, and more than coexist, to flourish with others who have also been forgiven by a gracious God. Pursuing Christian unity means that we respect and we honor and we prioritize what God is building among us. Not a wall to keep others out, but a house to invite others in. Because that's what Paul keeps saying, you are being built into a spiritual house. So he threw down the wall and he's building up a house. And if you're forgiven, it doesn't matter what your background is, you belong here. We belong to one another. And so we're not trying to build a wall to keep others out. We're trying to cultivate a spiritual home to bring others in. Yes, the church is also an organization. So we have to function like an organization. But we're more than an organization. We're an organism. We're like a vine, Paul says, in other places. We're like a human body, Paul says, in other places. And here he's saying, we're like a spiritual house. We're very different people. Even those who were formerly enemies are all now brothers and sisters. And we must remember this in a world where unity is fleeting and unsatisfying. In our time, unity is, have you noticed this? Unity is an end in itself. Now, sometimes you ask, you know, uh, you're the company you work for or maybe the school district or a university or a political party uh, or even, you know, uh, the, the theme of a, of, a, of a movie or a popular song, you say, well, what's the point of unity? And there's no answer. It's, well, unity. It's just unity. We're pursuing unity as an end in itself. And the, the problem with pursuing unity in that way is it, it lacks purpose. It lacks power. 
and I know this is a generalization, but I think people pursue unity for two basic reasons. One is they pursue unity in order to ward off the world around them. And in that type of unity, it breeds an us versus them mentality. Unify with those who have your values, who care about the things you care about, and who agree that the other folks are undesirable or dangerous. But the other reason people often seek unity is to assimilate with the world around them, with the communities around them. Simply to assimilate. The problem with that is it nullifies, it kind of erases individuals. It erases diversity in the name of being not like other people and and agreeing on all of the principles together. So some people pursue unity to protect themselves from the rest of the world, and some people pursue unity to just assimilate and find protection in that. But then each camp says to one another, you know, in order to be unified, you must ward off those people and become like us. And a a modern theologian who was actually a professor of mine in seminary said, so now what does our society look like? We have all of these polarizations where people in every group are simplistically and unfairly stereotyping people in other groups. And that is where our ungrounded pursuit of unity has left us. There's actually less diversity and less understanding. Unity, and and if you're not a Christian, I want you to think about this. I invite you to think about how every time you've pursued unity, it 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 has ultimately fallen apart or not been what you expected it to be. It's somehow been unsatisfying, and I will promise you that every pursuit of unity you seek in this life, whether with family or in politics or, or culture or whatever it is, you know, the school district, whatever it is, your children, every, every attempt at pursuing unity will always fall short, and you will feel unsatisfied. Unity without a solid foundation is fleeting and unsatisfied. Because as Paul says, unity needs a foundation. Unity needs a cornerstone that can support it. And Christianity offers, the Christian message offers a unity that doesn't look to our capabilities, which will always fail. The Christian message approaches unity from the perspective of what God's capabilities are. There is room in the church for everyone who is forgiven. That's what God's capable of. He's capable of forgiving people who were formerly his enemies, who formerly wanted nothing to do with him. For he himself, Paul wrote in verse 14, I think this is the key, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. The Bible scholar Lynn Kohick talks about, as she's looking at this passage, she talks about the Pax Romana, You remember that from grade school? The the Pax Romana, the ancient Roman peace, how Rome was like a light. Remember you saw Gladiator, right? What does Russell Crowe keep saying? Rome is the light. The rest of the world is darkness. Well, that concept was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, how Rome, you know, basically controlling 25% of the world's population, was providing a lasting peace. The funny thing is, the ironic thing Lynn Kohick says is the Roman peace 
In order to accomplish it, extreme brutality was enforced on so many peoples in order to accomplish the Pax Romana, ultimately a brutality unleashed without mercy on Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of his people, the Jews, who died for the sins of the world, the Gentiles, who died to unify black and white and Asian and men and women and Democrats and Republicans and Ukrainians and Russians. Is it getting hotter as those delineations come out? Think about it. If what Paul is saying is true, there is no faction that cannot find reconciliation with another faction if the foundation of their pursuit is a man who died for both of their sins. For everyone who receives God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, there is true hope for unity. Not perfect, we're still sinners. You know me, I am a sinner. We can pursue unity with each other. It will never be perfect this side of heaven. So much of what the Bible talks about, says uh, uh, theologian Richard Lentz, is, is a future perfect unity that will be accomplished when Jesus returns. But for now, we pursue it. We move towards it. Why? Because it's already our identity. It says that Jesus Christ in history on a Roman cross killed the hostility. That is a fact. It is a heavenly reality that we have to grow up into as we mature as his sons and daughters. Perfection in this life? Never. Progress? Yes, because the foundation is the blood of Jesus Christ who died for all of our sins if we will trust him as our savior and reconciler and mediator to God and to one another because Paul finally says at the end of the passage, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the slogan, good fences make good neighbors, Robert Frost finally responds to when the narrator of the poem says, Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. And if I may use that illustration, grace wants the wall down. When we comprehend what the grace of God is, the grace of God in the church wants the wall down. Grace unites us. Because grace declares that God has made peace with me. Were you reading? Were you paying attention the last two weeks? Just, if you weren't here, read, read Ephesians chapter 1 and the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. What did we learn? That, that God has made peace with me through no effort of my own. It was the gift of his grace. And that is why Paul could say that Jesus has killed the hostility between me and everyone else. If I believe that God has made peace with me through the blood of Jesus Christ and that I didn't work for that, but he gave that forgiveness to me as a gift, do you see now that erases every type of delineation, every type of difference, every type of status that I would normally use, for better or for worse, to compare myself to any of you? 
and vice versa. Do you see when you can say, I have been forgiven by the grace of God, and when I can say, I have been forgiven by the grace of God, all comparisons go away. All boasting is abolished. The wall comes down, and we have no reason to say somebody doesn't belong. I'm better than you, or you're better than me. Shame goes away. Guilt goes away, because the foundation is the cross of Christ. A healthy church builds unity on the foundation of God's unifying grace. And that grace unifies people who would otherwise in this world be divided. And I'll close with a quote from John Perkins, a devout Christian and civil rights activist who just a few years ago was quoted in an interview as saying, so all parties need to repent and all parties need to forgive. This is the only way out of the hostility and division we have long accommodated in many different kinds of churches. So may our primary pursuit for unity in our lives be with those whom, like us, God has forgiven. Let's let that be the priority because all the other types of unity we are seeking and people are seeking are ultimately going to fall short. And we want to invite them into the house that God is building. When they look around, and like Pink Floyd said, they keep seeing another brick in the wall going up and up and up. We show them a church, yes, filled with sinners, but with sinners who know they've been forgiven, with sinners who are working towards reconciliation with the people who vote differently and talk differently and act differently and whom have hurt one another. That's what God is building. Do we want to be a part of what God is building right now? I pray that we do. Okay, let's pray, and we'll close. Father, as we, as we baptize infants and bring new members in to what you are doing here, we confess uh, that so often uh, we tend to to uh, lay those bricks back on top of one another. And forgive us for doing that. We're sorry for it. I pray that your grace would remind us that there is something that does not love a wall that wants it down. And I pray that we would be people of grace where the only thing we boast in is your forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to pursue a greater union than any nation or constitution or ideology or ethnicity or culture or tradition will ever accomplish. Help us to build our unity on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. In his name, we praise you and thank you. Amen.